Welcome to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast, where in every episode we explore what is research culture and what should it be. You'll hear thoughts and opinions from a range of contributors to help you change research culture into what you want it to be. Hi, I'm Tony Bromley and welcome to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast. This is season two and in season two we are talking to presenters at the Researcher Education and Development Scholarship Conference of 2022. The conference theme was how do we stop losing talent in research careers and particularly today we've got uh, Rachel Hanferfer and we're going to talk about the presentation The Leaky Pipeline Who Loses out. Um, so hello, hello to you, Rachel. Hi, Tony. Thanks very much for having me. That's okay. Um, and we were just having, a, as we normally, as I normally do, having a little preamble, a little talk before we start the podcast. You remembered, you mentioned barbershop singing, something to do with singing, yes? Yeah, that's right, Tony. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, in fact, just before the pandemic started, I uh, decided I wanted to do a bit more singing. I've got a kind of musical background, but I've never tried barbershop. So when I saw uh, Steel City Voices, which is the name of my um, Sheffield-based all-female barbershop choir, um, I decided to go for it. And yes, it's been quite the experience of song all sorts um, from kind of versions of the Beatles uh, to Anastasia covers um, and some more traditional kind of barbershop stuff as well. So, yeah, that's what I do in some of my spare time. Excellent. And, and so can we look that up? Will it appear in Google if we absolutely, Google it? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, if you Google Steel City Voices, um, will absolutely come up. That's that is something I'm going to look up when we when we stop recording this podcast. Um, if cool, let's come back to the, the the topic of your presentation. Um, and also actually, can we do a shout out to uh, Kate? You weren't the only one who did the presentation, so if you just want to introduce, absolutely, your yeah, my colleague. co-presenter Kate Jones um is not not able to join me today, but uh, absolutely we co-presented and it was um yeah really fun experience at the conference. So I'm sure she'd be glad to be here if she could be, but for me it's just just me today flying solo. That's that's absolutely fine. Um, so the in terms of the title, you talk about the leaky pipeline. Now, um, it's a it's a well used metaphor in the UK, but I wasn't sure if it's an international uh, metaphor. So I just wonder if you could perhaps introduce a little bit more about what you mean by the leaky pipeline and is it international vita i know as an organization yeah international? yeah absolutely and it was interesting when you kind of posed this question tony because i was thinking about it and i think it's almost one of those phrases where it's been used so often that's perhaps relied on maybe too much to describe sort of patterns of participation and engagement of certain groups within the academic system is how i would sort of broadly describe it but i think maybe like all metaphors it's uh, imperfect and maybe a bit overused um, but it is used internationally the term leaky pipeline um, and in fact I think kind of the first use or one of the first uses was by Marcia Baranaga in the US and she was talking in the early 90s um, about the kind of lack of women's participation and that was specifically in neuroscience sort of after the PhD stage so that's where I kind of first came across the term but I yeah. think it's yeah it's kind of useful to critique it a bit and I think that's what Kate and I did try and do a little bit in the presentation. I think most people would understand the leaky pipeline to be used in relation to gender and kind of low participation of women in different parts of higher education. Although it is used actually interestingly in other sectors as well um, to describe the lack of women in more senior roles um, in sectors including like teaching and law and business. Um, but yeah, I think we have tried to sort of offer a more critical view of the term. And while it might be maybe 
a kind of useful visual shorthand perhaps to understand the kind of lack of access and participation it's maybe not the most useful metaphor in some ways um to describe kind of talent loss and uninclusive research culture because it, it puts the individual kind of on individuals sort of lack of able, ability to progress um in a way but we know that the reality is that there are like kind of structural inequalities that intersect um across identities and groups um, although I thought it was interesting, the Leading Roots report, which I'll probably refer back to later um, in their recent report on um, postgraduate researchers' access to research council funding, they also drew on the idea of the pipeline in their title, although they did rightly refer to it as broken rather than leaking, which I think is a, right. a pretty accurate representation of the inequalities that they were talking about. Yeah, and well, I have an engineering background, so I identify with pipelines. It, it does... Um... It's it's been a useful metaphor um, to uh, express issues, but it, it suggests that you put one thing in one end as a pipeline, and something else comes out the, the other end. But as you said, the critique of it, I think, has been useful for us to analyze what we what we mean by it. Um, yeah, you, you've mentioned in the abstract in your presentation, you mentioned a number of reports, strategies relating to underrepresented um, groups. Um, I just wondered what the what are these reports saying? How could you summarise about the barriers that there are to research progression for underrepresented groups? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Tony. And and yeah, I think there are a range of recent and older reports which highlight kind of a range of inequalities in academic career progression from individuals from a, a, a variety of underrepresented groups. I think in particular, like we know that the PhDs are at a critical stage. And the entry into that qualification is not an equitable process. And in fact, you know, I just mentioned the Leading Roots report they released in 2019 um, about kind of access to funding for doing a PhD. And I think it was just really shocking, you know, saying that 1.2% of UKRI Search Council scholarships were awarded to Black or students from a Black mixed ethnic background. And just 30 of those were of Black Caribbean heritage. Um, I actually heard, I heard, was lucky enough to hear Jason Arday speak at the UK CGE Mental Health Conference recently. And he said that there were so few of them funded, um, these black black PGRs, that they actually made a WhatsApp group. Right. Which was just yeah. staggering, really, isn't it? Um, For it to be manageable, yes, a small group. Yeah, yeah, that's how small the numbers were. So although it does seem that there are some efforts, I think, across the sector being made to try and address that inequality to to PGR degrees, and um, for example, the recent OFS funding rounds um, that's supporting universities to improve access and participation for Black, Asian, and minority ethnic groups um, in postgraduate research. But I think, um, you know, in terms of other research, we know that even if entry to PGR degrees is achieved, we know that there's evidence that individuals from different backgrounds don't all progress in the same way in academia and don't experience career progression in the same ways. You know, I think there's previous research that I've certainly looked at as part of my own doctoral research, which is around women's career progression in academia. Um, and I looked at research that was done by both the Wellcome Trust and the Royal Society of Chemistry um, that indicated that women are more likely than men to be put off an academic career during the doctorate. Um, and that's due to factors such as unequal access to networks, um, career mentors and appropriate advice, um, sort of how to get ahead. Um, but also as, as well, like the lack of women role models, uh, particularly in STEM subjects, and also this perception of academic careers, maybe not as being as compatible with family life as other careers. Um, also, for my own research, um, that, like I say, I did this as a sort of doctorate, um, explored the career aspirations of women PhD students from across different subject areas. 
And I found the experiences of lab culture that kind of embedded within higher education institutions, um, gendered expectations and discrimination um, all contributed to feelings of kind of marginalisation within the academic environment and made it quite difficult for women PhD students to imagine belonging within academia in the kind of longer term, I suppose. Yeah, um, just to go go back to other groups. Um, sorry, I could talk about this all day, probably. So no, that's me. OK. Keep going, so keep going. We'll try not to go on too much. But um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. We know that getting a PhD is not like a guarantee of career progression. And certainly going back to the kind of experience of Black, Asian and minority ethnic students and and academics you know Kamal Bhopal's written really really interestingly about this and the kind of flight of black and minority ethnic scholars um, leaving academia due to racial discrimination and Nicola Rollock has, has done some really interesting work around the kind of intersection between black and minority ethnic individuals progression and, and women so she did a report a few years ago that looked at the experiences of black women professors and the kind of factors that had affected their career progression and racial discrimination, you know, is, is a huge factor that affected progression. Um, but also, I mean, I'll talk more about this later, Tony. Um, we know that there's kind of ableism in the academic system yes. that affects the career progression of disabled academics. Um, and, and that has all sorts of kind of impacts on, on how they're able to progress. And obviously I can talk a bit more about that later as I did at conference. Yeah. And it's, Interesting. Our, our keynote speaker at, at the conference obviously touched on the well distinct lack of black female professors in the country. Yeah. The, the statistics are in, in incredible and not in a positive, not in a positive way. Yeah. Um, there's another crack vitae. You've done all sorts of work, and, and clearly from your own your own background as well. Um, so you've mentioned a number of reports. I, I just wondered the information that you have from VTI crack analysis and also HESA um, data, the higher education statistics yeah. agency. Is there anything you could say more about that sort of the, both the VTI crack reports that you have and the HESA data? It's probably a big question. <laughs> Is there anything more you can say yeah, about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess I'll specifically focus on the kind of uh, report that we wrote for the Royal Society who commissioned yes. us to do this work around um, the career progression of disabled scientists. And that was back in 2019 now. Um, and we wrote it up in 2020. So as part of that project, we did some new analysis of statistical data on disability disclosure. Um, and, and that was part of wider work to address kind of barriers to participation and, and progression in STEM. Um, it was quite a small scale qualitative research project that we did, but we did also do some kind of background analysis of um, staff record data from HESA. Uh, and that was from 2012-13, but also 2018-19. And we did that work really to contextualise the qualitative findings of the work that we were doing and to investigate some of the kind of historical trends in more detail. Um, and so that analysis indicated that academics in STEM fields were less likely to report a disability than academics in other disciplines, which was interesting. And we found that the disclosure of disabilities from academics was particularly low in certain subject areas, um, for example, engineering, medicine and some physical sciences. Um, and the idea of disclosure of disabilities really interesting, I think, because there's a very different situation for academics and for students that are disabled. Um, so students have quite a sort of um, relatively straightforward procedure that they follow. They get access to many different things, including disabled students allowance, things like that. But the situation for staff is often a lot less clear cut. Um, and obviously, until you disclose a disability, you're not entitled to reasonable adjustments. And, you know, in order to obviously progress and have a, a good experience in, in your career, you do kind of need certain adjustments um, and opportunities to be supported in that. 
So if you haven't disclosed, then obviously that's going to be much more difficult. Um, so we found that rates of disability disclosure varied hugely across career stages from the analysis of user data that we did. There were much higher rates of disclosure by students and postgraduates compared with staff, um, but also in terms of the types of conditions that were being disclosed. There was much more kind of disclosure of mental health conditions and cognitive and learning disabilities um, amongst students than there was at staff. And particularly at senior staff level, there were very, very few examples where there were kind of disclosure of mental health conditions in particular, which was really interesting. There was almost complete absence of any disclosure of those conditions by those aged over 50 or those in professorial roles, which was really quite stark. Um, it was also interesting looking at kind of early career staff um, in comparison to their sort of senior counterparts. So in that kind of really key early career stage for staff, disclosure was lower amongst those on research only contracts who we know are more likely to be on kind of short term temporary contracts. And obviously, many of them will be wanting to secure a permanent academic role in a very competitive environment. So, you know, that's that's quite an interesting finding that they felt less able to kind of seek that support. That, that in some way would, they needed the support yeah, they needed. would stop them getting the progression. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and one of the kind of potential explanations for the low rates of disclosure in STEM is possibly because they've maybe taken themselves on a slightly different trajectory. So we've talked about kind of research only compared to teaching, teaching only. And we know that in research only position, disclosure of disability is low. Um, but those in teaching focus roles, it, it, the disclosure was higher. So it, it is interesting to consider whether the higher proportions of those with a disability are either kind of choosing or maybe ending up on a teaching only route instead. Um, so, yeah, some really interesting things that came out there. But beyond the analysis of just user data, if I, if I may, I'll talk about the kind of more qualitative findings that we did from our interviews with disabled scientists. Absolutely, and I think yeah. what struck what struck me was really how they found that the competitive environment of academic STEM was just very difficult in terms of the sort of various underlying assumptions and expectations that it placed on them. So this idea of you know being consistently very high level productive in terms of your research, um, constantly accruing external research grants, um, the expectation um, just as a default that you would be working full time, um, and sort of the demands of being regularly present at um, conferences and networking events. And obviously, this research was done before many things went online. Um, so yeah, there's probably some differences now, and and you'd hope that maybe events and, and such like have got a bit more accessible. Um, but I think also there is a kind of tendency for people to want to go back to physical events and kind of that expectation is maybe coming back again. Um, but there was considerable evidence in the research that we did that individuals perceived their disability to really have negatively impacted on their career progression. Um, and that was compounded for individuals in different situations. For example, mid-career female scientists who'd taken maternity leave and had care and responsibilities felt that they'd sort of had, you know, double, double, double the discrimination, really, um, and, and anticipated that they'd been affected in, in many different ways um, because of that kind of complex life. So what really was interesting to me as well, I think, was how early career researchers anticipated that the rest of their career would go. Um, I think they really struggled to envisage how they would embody this like ideal career trajectory of being able to sustain um, these long working hours and continuing to be highly mobile and securing these successful large um, external grants. Um, 
and and also one of the main issues that emerged was also around the kind of low numbers that felt able to disclose a disability and to try and get support from their employer, the university, to you know address some of these challenges. Um, and perceived barriers to disclosing disability was really sadly quite quite significantly mostly about um, perceived stigma. So particularly that kind of fear of discrimination, particularly for those with mental health conditions, really came out of our interviews. Um, and interestingly, like the early career participants felt that it might become easier once they were at a more senior career stage to disclose disability. But we can see that that, that actually doesn't hold true with what we found in the HEAST data. So it, it almost becomes you know, progressively more difficult to, to disclose that once you get to a more senior role. Um, and other barriers to disclosure included kind of the lack of clarity as to who would own that information and what they would do with it. Um, and again, that kind of highlighted to me the real difference between how disabled staff are treated and how disabled students are treated. Mm-hmm. But of course, like not everyone was able to make that decision about whether to disclose because some of the nature of individual dis- disabilities were so visual or so physically um, kind of challenging that they needed to disclose. They had to in order to get you know the basic adjustments that they needed. Um, but what was really, really sad for me and the kind of shocking thing that really came out was that the majority of participants that we spoke to, particularly those at the mid and senior level of their career. So those that you would assume, you know, have managed to get across um, these barriers and have managed to succeed anyway. They wouldn't recommend other disabled scientists to disclose their disability because of the challenges and discrimination that they'd faced. So, you know, to me, that that's a really significant really significant finding because it just means that you know if things aren't getting better for those at the senior stage and they are giving up that advice to younger scientists how how will change happen it's a really um it's, it's a really stark thing for research culture to for, for you know having that coming to that realization um i guess the people who are currently experiencing research culture are the ones in a sense that set research culture for those who come up behind them and it was interesting and i noticed somewhere that the disclosure at um so postgraduate researchers are less likely to disclose than undergraduates as well it was a piece of work that i saw a while ago um i just want to try and bring things together and we had the in in your title about who loses who loses and who gains yeah um so well i pose your title back to you so who, (laughs) who who is it that loses and who gains yeah, I think that's a really good, really good question. And actually, we didn't have much time to explore this in a quite, a quite short presentation at the conference. So it's useful to have the opportunity now. And I think ultimately, I'd probably kind of start at quite a high level. Um, ultimately, the UK as a whole needs to drive productivity through their research base. And that's been acknowledged within the government's commitment to develop the research and innovation workforce. You know, that's been highlighted in their recent people and culture strategy. Um, And all of it kind of highlights the need to build sustainable research capacity and support innovation across sectors. And I think it is becoming kind of increasingly accepted that an innovative research workforce will be best achieved through the inclusion of like lots of different perspectives and backgrounds and experiences. And that will really kind of maximise creativity and innovation. So enhancing the participation of researchers from all backgrounds and across underrepresented groups is really key to achieving that. So I think, you know, our research with disabled scientists highlights how the current scientific environment in the UK just doesn't do enough to support individuals to to progress their careers and realise their potential. 
So we know that UK science drives improvements in our everyday lives and more, more broadly, our economy will suffer if we fail to kind of plug the pipeline to use the phrase that I've already criticised. Yes. <laughs> or more, specific, more specifically, if we fail to maximise our research talent and the UK's capacity to produce research that has positive benefits to society in many ways. So I guess I was coming around to thinking about this and maybe speaking about it in less negative terms. So rather than in, as in who loses, perhaps it's more helpful to see the ways in which fostering an inclusive research community is beneficial for everyone. Um, although arguably perhaps not for those who might more traditionally have succeeded in academic career progression. Um, so perhaps that, that's who loses. Yeah, I've seen um, work where diversity in research groups has led to um, well, better research is a, is a really broad term of putting it, but the diversity does seem to have a, a positive impact because you've got yeah. diverse, more likes have the more diverse views, which impacts upon the research. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm conscious of trying to bring things to a close. It's been fantastic <laughs> to talk to you. There's so many subjects within what we've talked about. We could talk yeah, at from on most of these things, but just as a final thing, is there perhaps one or two things that you think uh, we could perhaps do at the individual level and perhaps even at the, you know, you, you talked right up to the governmental type level. Is there a couple of things just to summarise that we could do, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there has to be more focused work to address the inequalities faced by certain groups in higher education. And I think the Leading Roots report really highlighted some of those. Um, you know, we're starting to see ring fence funding for black and minority ethnic students applying for PhD places, which I think should go some way to address the underrepresentation of those groups. Um, but I think certainly more more effort on, on that front would be really, really good. Um, in terms of the work we did specifically around better supporting disabled scientists to progress their careers, uh, we made kind of a number of different recommendations at different levels for the sector, for key funders in, in that um, area and for individual institutions as well. And those really included the need for institutions and funders to provide really clear and comprehensive definitions of disability. Um, and, and that's actually, you know, not too difficult a thing to achieve, um, particularly outlining the types of adjustments that could be made available for disabled applicants mm -hmm. and stating those really, really overtly on job applications and funding applications, as well as kind of staff web pages. Um, and all of those types of things we found in our research helped individuals feel more able to disclose and access the support they needed. So, you know, I think that's some really practical things that universities and funders could do. But sort of more broadly than that, I think, you know, there has to be this kind of commitment and not just willingness, but proactivity amongst funders um, and for the sector to demonstrate a more proactive approach to inclusivity and consider introducing specific adjustments. For example, the time to apply for grants. So a lot of the kind of um, research that we did found that the very short, tight deadlines for applying for external funding was just a real massive barrier for those with, for example, chronic conditions or mental health conditions. So having a kind of rolling system of applications rather than like a firm fixed deadline once a year is something that could really help. Um, the inclusion of discrete funding for additional costs incurred by disabled scientists, for example, the need for a personal assistant or additional type of equipment. Um, and that has to be outside of you know, the actual scientific research funding that's that's being um, applied for. Um, obviously, you know, there are loads of different innovations that exist in terms of inclusive recruitment outside of academia. Um, so, for example, um, offering applications in different formats, it's a really obvious one, and um, providing room for contextualised CVs. Um, you know, there's some really practical things that, that funders could do to support um, disabled scientists and just to be more inclusive. You know, there's so many great things that we've talked about. 
Um, but I thought what was is really good that you've raised a number of things that we can think about. We've also given us this uh, quite a good few things that we could actually do, which is really good to hear. Um, so I'm afraid we're, I'm out of time. So thank you very much for joining us. It's been really yeah. good to listen to you. So thank you. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Tony. Great to see you. Thanks for listening to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast. Please subscribe so you never miss out on our brand new episodes. And if you're enjoying the discussions, give us some love by dropping a five-star rating and written review as it helps other research culturists find us. And please share with a friend and show them how to subscribe. Email us at academicdev at leads.ac.uk. Thanks for listening and here's to you and your research culture.